Hello, greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bear Talk. My guest today is Jason Stanley, the Jacob Arowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. He's the author of a number of books, uh, most recently, last couple, uh, How Propaganda Works, How Fascism Works, and uh, I guess he has another book coming out next year on the politics of language. So I've invited him on the podcast to discuss his book, uh, How, Fascism, How Fascism Works. So, uh, Professor Stanley, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Uh, Professor Bear, it's an honor to be in conversation with you. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I want to talk, just get right into the book, because it's a kind of controversial book. Some people like it and some people hate it, I guess. Um, before we get to the content of the book, I wonder if you might just say a little bit about what motivated you to write the book or why you were interested in this topic in the first place. So so I'm the child of two Holocaust survivors. My, my father came at almost the age of seven from Berlin. He arrived in a boat uh, in New York City in August 3rd, 1939. Uh, from Berlin, Hamburg, the boat had left from, but he had been living in Berlin. And my mother uh, was Polish, uh, raised in a labor camp in Siberia uh, and repatriated back in 1945 and came to America in 1948 after some anti-Semites almost beat my grandfather to death, uh, beat my grandfather almost to death on the streets of Warsaw. So I grew up with, uh, with a legacy of European fascism, it's fair to say. Uh, and uh, and sensitivity to what that meant in the United States. My mother worked in in uh, Manhattan criminal court for for 44 years uh, as a court stenographer. She was there during the uh, Central Park Five case, uh, and she always said things to me like, "Thank God we're not black in this country. You know, it's we're in this country. It's not us. We aren't the targets. Thank God for that." So. Um, so I had this background, this deep and foreboding sense that that America had a, a kind of similar history, but directed against Black Americans. Uh, and when I and uh, but I it wasn't part of my work. My first three books were in technical areas of philosophy, language, and epistemology. Uh, and uh, and I also have you know my father's German Jewish. We have that whole German Jewish thing. So I went back to Germany, lived for years there. Uh, very much identify as uh, uh, German and American. Uh, and uh, and so this legacy is something that I thought through, thought about, thought what it meant to be uh, uh, German, Polish, Jewish. Uh, and uh, and when I, and I was in Hungary, what initially got me to sort of shift my research focus, really, though I was always interested in topics like propaganda uh, as, as part of philosophy of language. Uh, what got me to shift my research focus was um, two summers I spent in Budapest in, uh, in 2009 and 2010, running summer schools for Central European University in philosophy of language. And uh, 2009, Budapest was glorious. Everyone was like, it's the next Berlin. It's the next cosmopolitan liberal European city. The film industry will come here. Artists will come here. We're going to become wealthy. It, it'll be like Germany. Um, and then the next year, 2010, there was a lot of sort of deep foreboding weirdness among my Hungarian friends. Uh, uh, Orban had just come to power. Uh, his campaign had been very strange. People were talking about Trianon. I was like, Trianon? I kind of remember, I kind of remember AP history. 
you know, uh, like Trianon, <laughs> it's 2010. <laughs> and, and there's all this talk of greater Hungary. Um, I began to be sensitive to the anti-Roma sentiment in, in, in Hungary, which kind of shocked me. There, there's no obvious equivalent in the United States of a kind of open hatred. Uh, people were talking about provinces for Roma, uh, special schools for them. Uh, so this this struck me as a kind of return to tropes that I grew up hearing about. I, and I said to my Hungarian friends, Orban is terrifying. He's not going to leave power. I'm not coming back to Hungary again. That was not the right reaction to that situation. Um, uh, I did not return to Hungary for nine years, even though it was like the place that had first led me to think, to, to worry about a resurgence of this kind of politics. Um, and I, I, I was I was the keynote speaker for Central European University's final opening weekend uh, before they were kicked out. Uh, and that was shocking because it was shocking to talk to professors who had assured me nothing like this could ever happen. And it was absurd. And there's no way Orban could kick out the best university in Hungary and Eastern Europe from it couldn't happen. Their kids had learned Hungarian, gone to Hungarian schools. I mean, it, you know, it, it was kind of complete denial of reality. Um, so and when was that? That was in uh, 2019. 2019. Yeah. And, and CEU has a good uh, philosophy program. I think it doesn't. Very it? good. Excellent. Yeah. Still does. Yeah. And now it's in Vienna. Excellent. And I've always been connected to CEU's philosophy program. I've done multiple summer schools for them. Uh, I'm a friend of the program. I'm a friend of CEU. Okay. Well, okay. That's quite interesting. I didn't know that. Um, we were probably in Hungary at the exact same time. I, I was connected to CEU in, um, uh, when was it? After Orban, uh, I can't remember what year it was, 2014 maybe, and I was huh. researching the uh, the effects of his religion law. Um, and it was kind of like uh, sensitive. They didn't, wasn't sure I should talk so much, at least to see you about it, because I was very critical of uh, Orban. Um, and right. there's no doubt that Orban's coming to power was a big event in my in my own in, sort of thinking, my own intellectual thinking about politics and so forth. Well, anyway, so let's talk about your book. Yeah, can go you ahead. Say that, can you say a little bit more about that, David? I'm super Okay. Curious. All right. Uh, well, so... Um, you know, I have a long connection to Hungary. I, I, my my personal background is kind of interesting too, I guess, and why I'm interested in these topics, um, because my 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 on my father's side, my father and his family immigrated. They're German, and they immigrated to the United States in 1949. And my grandparents, they they had all been in China. Um, uh, my grandparents were missionaries, and so they they sort of missed out on. Uh, they weren't in Nazi Germany, uh, so they, well, they missed out on it, and they—that's called moral luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's moral luck, and they so they came to the United States in, in 1949, and it, my father was, uh, you know, ten or so or more, perhaps, and and of course they were German, and um, uh, so I have this German background. I know that my father, um, at least from high school or when he was growing up, he had a, a very good friend. One of his best friends was a. Um, a Jewish kid whose family had immigrated from Hungary from what, or maybe it was his grandparent had immigrated from Hungary for what was Austro-Hungary and they're the best friends. So, and it's this thing about a German, a German son of a German immigrant and a son of a Jewish immigrant are best friends. Uh -huh. And that's an American. That's only in America. Right. So that, that's right. just an incredible, I mean, well, anyway, that's a neat yeah. story. Where, uh, where was it? Was it was in up, they lived in, he lived in upstate New York. 
It was upstate. They, Hudson, New York. Oh, I'm from Syracuse. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for okay, so Noah's up on the Hudson. Downstate. Yeah. Okay, all right. I'm giving. Okay, yeah. so uh, so anyway, and then of course I have this connection to Hungary because I, I my wife's Hungarian and I got involved in Hungary and I, I spent time in Hungary um, basically since 1992. Wow. Uh, and I did work on the churches in in Hungary and the history of the churches under communism, and uh, so I followed polit- Hungarian politics, uh, not like like I do now, not so professionally. I just followed it and. I didn't really, I was never a big fan of Orban, but I, I was sympathized basically with, uh, uh, with I guess, the conservatives in, in Hungary because I thought that it, we shouldn't just have years, they shouldn't have years and years and years of, of former communists. Uh, I just didn't think it was right. And, I, and so I wasn't, you know, and the people had always said things about how Orban was really dangerous. I always thought it was an exaggeration. Uh, I mean, I didn't follow so closely. And then uh, in 2010, he came to power. I thought it was sort of deserved. Uh, he he should should have won, even though he wasn't a great guy. And then he just started dismantling the uh, uh, everything. Uh, and it was a, um, I mean, it was a it, it was a big deal because I had to rethink a lot of things. Uh, um, and I and uh, so I mean, I can't. I don't exactly. I don't know exactly what happened, but it caused a lot of changing in my thinking uh and so since then you know then i did some more research on hungary and then i sort of ended up being a um a critic of of the orban regime so uh, anyway so that's my my history i sort of backed into it i i'm not i'm a theologian i'm not a uh, i'm not a political commentator but i sort of ended up doing that um anyway so i've got a kind of personal interest and family background uh, also in these topics of fascism and and right-wing politics is kind of a little different from yours, but there's connection. So, well, anyway, so let's let's um, let's let's talk about your book, the one how fascism works, um, and maybe we could start. You could you could um, well, I'll ask you. Well, it seems in your book you you distinguish between sort of fascist rhetoric and fascism. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that if that's correct and and, and what you mean by that. Absolutely. So my book is about fascist rhetoric. <laughs> it's not about fascist regimes. It's not about fascist leaders. It's about fascist propaganda. And that was the topic of my 2015 book, Propaganda. My 2015 book sort of centers on propaganda and liberal democracy. And uh, and my 28, but I used to talk a lot about fascist propaganda, and did a lot of research on the topic. And my 2018 book focuses on fascist propaganda, on fascist politics, on using certain tropes uh, to gain power, because it's always been clear to me as a philosopher, and I'm a philosopher first and foremost, uh, not a historian, uh, it's always been clear to me, dating back to Plato, that, uh, well, let me say a little bit, I need to return to my 2015 book to contextualize my 2018 book. The purpose of my 2015 so the, the 2018 book, is how pro, that's the one how, fascist, how fascism works, works. or, or how fascism books is how propaganda okay works. all right my 2015 book is the product of five to seven years of writing and what i tried to do there is i tried to argue that the central problem of liberal democracy is not redistribution as john rawls would have it but it's rather the problem of propaganda and if you go back to plato's republic book eight when Plato talks about democracy, he says democracy's main problem is that um, is that it al- it allows is is freedom undermines democracy. So 
Freedom undermines democracy by allowing anyone to run for public office, so even a tyrant. And freedom undermines democracy because freedom of speech allows anyone to say whatever they want. And so you can use a certain kind of tyrant, an unprincipled tyrant, can use a certain kind of politics to win power. They can appeal to the people's prejudices and fears and split the people apart and, and win power. And so, so my point in my 2015 book was to show that political theorists until democratic political theorists until extremely recently, until the 1970s, regarded this as the main problem of democracy. And we've lost that. We've lost, we've forgotten that the main problem for democracy is democracy involves resentment and politics because of inequality. And people, people are not trained to deal with those resentments. And a skilled politician will use that resentment to win power and end democracy. And if you look at the great democratic theorists like Rousseau, um, ha, uh, uh, I mean, Hobbes is not a democratic theorist, of course, but you know what the uh, uh, Rousseau, uh, uh, Locke, others are, they're always talking about uh, what a, you know, I think Rousseau puts it, what a wizard, how a wizard from, a wizard with words can dominate. So, oh. so my, so how fascism works is about fascist politics. And it's explicitly thinking about folks like Orban, who don't have, you know, don't have an ideology beyond self-enrichment. Uh, and and sort of loyalist corruption, and are using these tactics cynically. They're using them cynically, as opposed to someone like Hitler, who fully believed uh, in what he was doing. Um, uh, someone like Goebbels is more complex, um, but but I, Goebbels also, I think, certainly becomes very convinced. But it seems to me that you can use these tactics uh, cynically, as say. The Republican Party used in their Southern strategies. Bill Clinton did when he took over the Republican Party strategies. We're going to end welfare as we know it, uh, the, the crime bill. Uh, uh, these strategies can be used cynically to win power. And we can talk about, so So when people talk about fascism, they, they often focus on different, they focus on very different things. And so some people focus on what a fascist regime looks like. Um, Toni Morrison, in one of the great discussions of fascism, brief discussions of fascism ever, her essay, Racism and Fascism, says, talks about fascist solutions to national problems. <laughs> That's a great, but she's not talking about a fascist regime or fascist, she's talking about fascist solutions to national problems. My focus in how fascism works is on fascist propaganda, rhetoric, and politics. Right, so what makes it? What makes the rhetoric uh, fascist as opposed to you know demagogic or or it could be anything? What what makes it fascist? Well, I think I think there's clear demagoguery of on the left, like uh, like uh, you know uh, you, de demagoguery is sort of a demagoguery is a more general strategy. Uh, is a more general characterization. I characterize all these things in like my 2015 book, which is the boring, poorly written academic book that doesn't sell. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so demagoguery is, uh, as I characterize it in my 2015 book, it, how propaganda works is um, is propaganda sort of aimed to cut off rational debate, uh, to to move to emotion not grounded in argument. Um, in the service of bad goals. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so 
my 2018 book assumes fascist goals are bad goals and, and fascist fascist fa fascist politics is a species of demagoguery it's a species of demagoguery that focuses on ethnic division uh, on immigration on uh, on labor unions on a threat of communism and socialism uh so uh and and on democracy itself as the danger on liberal on on, on equality as the danger uh, on social justice movements as the danger uh, and and misrepresents those uh, as uh, as really uh, attempts to gain power for minority groups. And fascist demagoguery seeks to take the dominant group and make them fearful that minorities will take, that social justice movements for minorities will take over. And so they need a strong, powerful defense. Okay, so I mean, all right. So this is the uh, okay, someone who's on the right, a conservative person, is going to read your book. Maybe they how fascism. I'm thinking about how fascism works, and they're going to say, "Well, this guy is uh, just some lefty, um, and he doesn't agree with um, whatever the things that we think are important. So he he doesn't agree with we want to we want to protect we conservatives want to protect the family. He doesn't agree with that." He, thinks it's patriarchy. We, we're concerned about uh, gender, this and that, and he thinks that's whatever, uh, something else. He's, so he's just against our policies. So we're against abortion, and he thinks that's fascist. Or He, he doesn't like it because he's a lefty, and he's just going to call anything that, that he doesn't like that's on the right fascist, right? So, I mean, it's just fascist because it's conservative. Uh, that, that's the kind of pushback, right, or criticism you're going to get. So why isn't that a valid... I mean, you'd have to you have to show somehow that these things are more that there's some connection to something deeper. Absolutely. Yeah. So so and you need to do this essentially because the only people who can defeat the main people who are going to need to defeat fascism are conservatives. You need to say could have conservatives come and say, no, 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 we want democracy. We want liberal democracy. We want to give people we disagree with equal weight. You know, uh, we're not going to to go the route of dismantling elections of corruption, of muzzling the media. You need conservatives to do that. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so, but fascism is the kind of authoritarianism, there's authoritarianism on the left and authoritarianism on the right. Fascism is a kind of authoritarianism that only works if conservatives go for it. Now the conservatives who go for it, who need to go for it are different kinds of conservatives. They're not even consistent with each other. So fascism only wins when you've got big business uh, merging with social conservatives uh, and, you know, uh, in a kind of incoherent big ten behind a fascist leader. So in the Nazi Germany, you had big business saying, oh, he's going to smash the labor unions. So we don't care about the other stuff, but, you know, fine. He's going to get rid of uh, problems for uh, he's, he, you know, I mean, certainly like Mein Kampf obsessive about labor unions uh you have uh so um in the american fascist past you have that too so you have big big business uh, uh coming on board to support uh to support usually a fascist leader um and and so you know even though the big business man, like peter Thiel is gay but he's funding people who are anti-lgbt i mean he he he's not anti-lgbt <laughs> so uh so so I think there are certain, I mean, there are certain clear differences between standard conservatism and fascism. 
So the mythic past in chapter one is really important. So conservatives hearken back to, so, so I like to make a distinction between a kind of conservative uh, rosy romantic past and a fascist romantic past. The conservative nationalist past is in the past, we shared certain traditions. You know, we spoke the same language, we went to the same churches, there were some sheep herders over there who spoke Polish. There were some uh, farmers over there who spoke Polish. We were all Polish together. It was great, wasn't it? That's the conservative vision. Like, you know, small towns, you know, wonderful. But the fascist mythic past is we were great. We dominated. We were pure and we were great. And our greatness has been destroyed. And we need to, by liberals, by immigration, by feminists, and we need to return to that greatness. So it's fueled by, as we see in Russia right now, uh, I think Russia is a very clear example of a fascist, Putin's Russia of a fascist country, uh, which uh, you, you see this, uh, this desire for, uh, uh, to recreate world respect for Russia, for Russian greatness. So that's no aspect of conservatism. I mean, a conservative wants to preserve traditions. They don't want to create, redo, and like resurrect a fake version of the past, Phoenix-like, that will get everyone in the world to bow down before the greatness. So that's that's a difference. So, so do you think those are differences of degree, or is that a difference of kind? There, I think it's a difference in kind. Uh, I don't think I don't think I don't think conservatism as a political philosophy has anything to do with domination. Um, uh -huh. Uh, it's just domination is not a, a conservative value or virtue. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another aspect is is hierarchy, racial and ethnic hierarchy. Um, uh, so uh, so I you know it's no part of conservatism to to want inequality between groups. Mm -hmm. You know this is this is but fascism involves this baked in inequality, this, this commitment to inequality, this representation of equality as a danger. And what fascists, what fascist politics does is it tries to tell conservatives that their traditions are placed under threat by the existence of say LGBT or the existence of people who have different traditions. No conservative should go for that kind of Fear-mongering. I mean, my my entire living family is traditionally Orthodox Jewish, living in Brooklyn and Lakewood. Uh, they have every right to live as they want. My existence as a Reformed Jew, whose kids, you know, who, you know, we go to temple for high holidays, but we're not. My existence does not threaten them, um, uh, and and should not threaten them, and their existence doesn't threaten me. Uh, but what someone, a figure like Orban does, he says the very existence of, 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 um, of same-sex couples who are married with kids is a threat to you. That's not conservatism. Conservatism doesn't involve repudiating liberty. Uh, it, it just doesn't, you know, uh, I mean, so, so you get, but what a fascist leader does is he'll come and say, uh, uh, come and say the very existence of people living non-conservative lives is a mortal threat to you. A right. And that's right. And well, that's, okay. well, so, that's all right. So, I, not conservatism at all. 
the so there it sounds like conservatism. This is sort of conservatism within the the liberal tradition, our liberal democracy. And I'm talking, right. and uh, so a conservative exactly. can be committed to liberal democracy, and the fascist, the fascist is um, not. Or it sounds the, like the fascist right? represents liberal democracy's freedoms as a as a as a dire threat to conservatism. Yeah, right. Okay, so that's fine. Uh, I guess my I'm going to see if I can tr- still push on this. I, I I wouldn't be inclined to call it fascist. I would be inclined to call this stuff just sort of right wing. I, I I I get that there is a kind of anti liberal uh, tendency. There clearly is uh, in American conservatism, uh, and also I guess globally now, right? He's certainly in Hungary and so forth. There's an anti liberal tendency. Uh, and so if you believe in liberal democracy, it's bad, right? Because they basically it aims at destroying, or even if it doesn't aim at that, it, its effect is to undermine uh, liberal democracy, uh, which is a value. For, there are lots of reasons why that's a value. It's a value because a, a German and a Jew can be friends, for example. Uh, um, uh, but I, I wouldn't want to call that fascism. Because, I mean, it may just be, I'm not sure what's at stake finally, I guess, in this. But to me, fascism is just a historical phenomenon that I associate with the sort of mid 20th century, you know, Mussolini is the sort of like, is the paradigmatic fascist in my mind. Uh, and it's connected to collectivism and totalitarianism and so forth. And I mean, it's right wing, but I, I wouldn't, I myself am not inclined to generalize and say that everything's fascist, even though I would agree that, you know, these, uh, I don't know if I'd agree with you on everything, but I'd agree with you a lot of times that these tendencies that that you are identifying are dangerous, uh, dangerous to democracy, uh, or to liberal democracy. So I'm not. So what's it, what's at stake in in calling these tendencies fascist? Good. So so I'm I'm writing another book now with the philosopher Susanna Siegel called "The Fascism as a Social Kind," um, sort of addressing a lot of the sort of foundational worries you're raising, and I'm going to talk about some of the points from that. Okay. Um, so question is, so the question is, what do we call this? So, well, let me back up. I I think of fascism as a philosophical category, primarily, not a historical category. Okay. I think of it sort of as, as, as a natural social kind. Um, and it's distinct as a natural social kind from right-wing authoritarianism, from, uh, from, uh, from ethno-nationalism, uh, from uh, from a number of other labels you can give it to, give to it. Why is it distinct, say, from ethno-nationalism? Well, you can have uh, anti-colonial ethno-nationalist movements that are movements of a minority group, like black nationalism. Uh, Marcus Garvey did say he was a fascist in the 1930s, but, uh, but, uh, but I think he was wrong. I think fascism is an ethno-nationalism of the dominant group. Uh, I think that... Uh, I think that right-wing authoritarianism can involve like a, just a straight dictatorship with no with no uh, uh, effort at attacking equality, uh, uh, with no effort uh, with no gender politics. It can just be you know a dictator saying everyone's going to work in 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 uh, in servility to me or else you'll be killed. Um, uh, you could have a libertarian dictator. Uh, 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 so the dark enlightenment. Um, of a Nick Land is a kind of, you know, there's a CEO who runs everything. But fascism requires a sort of ethnic component, um, like, uh, you know, ethnic or could be religious, where the dominant group 
the dominant group is superior, its traditions are under threat uh, from immigration or from, uh, from minorities getting empowered by equality. So that to me is key. And it's more a sign of German fascism. It's more obvious in German fascism than say early uh, Italian fascism. Okay, so let me ask you this. Uh, all right, so it's a philosophical kind. All right, now when we when you say it's a philosophical kind, um, it sounds like you're describing. I mean, I don't know if I'm wrong on this. Okay, it sounds like you're describing some sort of essence, a sort of almost like a platonic form of fascism. I mean, is that right, or am I is I am I mishearing you? That's what philosophers kind of do. <laughs> yeah, I would call it more of a family resemblance concept than an essentializing narrative, because I think that uh, different fascisms from Latin America to the United States to India, um, they have connections, but they're not all the same because the conditions on the ground are quite different in these countries. Mm -hmm. So when you have so you have a long theorization of this uh, with with social with social kinds like uh, uh, for instance, Leopold Senghor uh, call, uh, has, a, has a famous essay, The African Definition of Socialism. And he's like, well, how do you take this European concept of socialism and apply it here where we have an entirely different history than the one Marx talks about? And he says, well, you can apply some aspects and not others. And that's sort of how I think of it with fascism and very much modeling it as Senghor talks about how to take socialism and talk about places that don't have a history of of, of class conflict. Um, so, so I think of fascism as a kind of, as first and foremost, a kind, uh, 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 as in contrast to liberal, as a certain kind of contrast to liberal democracy. Uh, one that is explicitly anti-equality, uh, explicitly anti-liberal freedom. Uh, uh, it, it takes one dominant group and valorizes that dominant group. Um, uh, it has a it's patriarchal um, and it legitimates violence in defense of these ideals. Um, and and, it, and but I think it's not uh, I think fascism only can exist. It's not something that has always existed. When, when Plato's describing a tyrant in the eighth book of the Republic, there are some similarities to fascism in what he's describing. Uh, you know, he sets the people against each other. He takes a group and says they're a mortal danger and you need me to protect you. But I think you don't get fascism and how I understand it without the threat of communism. It lives together with with certain uh, institutions, with certain ideologies and also certain institutions. I think fascism generally, not invariably, sets itself as against labor unions. This is a common theme in both Du Bois and Hannah Arendt, like both of them say this, that labor unions, what labor unions do is they give you class identity. Like everybody, I've had people powerfully describe organizing, like taking, like someone recently described to me, a union organizer, like that they brought to the table black American workers and KKK members. And after a few 15 minutes of distrust, they both bonded over how much resentment they had towards the boss. So. So labor unions are this kind of threat because they create another identity. Uh, fascism, so fascism requires certain institutions like like probably labor unions. It requires certain. It requires 
a threat like socialism or communism. So it's a response to sort of threats from the left, right? I can see that. So yeah. like, uh, so communism, I mean, that would be historically, that would Absolutely. make sense. And maybe also li- uh, liberal democracy. So it's reacting or it has this reactive quality to to its uh, sort of presentation. Absolutely. I, I, I can see that. Yeah. Um, and so you could say that uh, there's quite a lot of uh, conservative rhetoric today I actually this I wouldn't I still wouldn't call it fascist, but I say there's a lot of rhetoric today on the right that is simply seems to be just reacting to it's not constructive. It's just a reactant reaction to bad things that it perceives on the left. And it, Mark, exactly. if they're Marxist, if there really are any Marxists that are running around threatening us. Then they're against Marxism and, right. and liberalism and so forth. OK, so. Um, all right. So there, that that's a. I, I, okay, so you—I I mean, you could you could do that. So then, what, what's the? Uh, you could call that fascism if you want. Um, I would say it's structured by certain narratives. One narrative is uh, is something like the cultural Marxist narrative that the Marxists have dominated institutions, and you need a violent response to retake the institutions. But another is great replacement theory. So this is sort of fairly uniform. I mean, Mussolini has a 1934 speech called uh, um, uh, 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 about uh, the, the, the dying of the white race. Um, is the white race dying? Um, and he says, since 1926, I've been warning that the white race in Italy has been dying. Um, Hitler is deeply affected by Madison Grant, um, is, is, is affected by, it completely has the white replacement rhetoric India, you're seeing a lot of the, you know, Hindu replacement rhetoric, this kind of replacement rhetoric, these structured narratives. I don't find this in any sense central to conservatism, mm-hmm. um, like ethnic replacement. Um, in fact, you know, uh, you know, your family were missionaries. They were doing right, the right, right. Okay, that's right. I guess so. <laughs> So, so, so I don't think that conservatism is a helpful label at all for this because this replacement rhetoric has no part in uh, in conservative, in my understanding, philosophical understanding. Well, okay. So you could say this replacement, let's say this replacement theory, replacement rhetoric is is we have to object to this. I mean, it's racist. I mean, a lot of reasons why it, it's bad. That's that's sort of obvious, I think. Uh, uh, and. Um, well, I, w- I, I don't know why. OK, and you can call it fascist if you want. And then people who, who will get sort of up in arms that, well, you're calling something you don't like fascist. Or you could say this is just a type of um, uh, political rhetoric, which is clearly aimed to manipulate people and which has the effect, if, if we were to act on it, that it would basically uh, under cause a lot of destruction of things that we value and undermine liberal democracy. So uh, that's the way I would present the case myself i wouldn't call right. it well I'm, I, I don't think there's much gap between i <laughs> i think that it's historically accurate useful to call it fascist propaganda because you clearly want to distinguish it from conservative from conservatism because uh-huh. conservatism liberal democracy requires conservatives <laughs> it requires mm-hmm. progressives because every problem has multiple angles and every problem you look at needs conservatives arguing with liberals and libertarians arguing with socialists to figure out what the right solution is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. liberal democracy needs that diversity. And this is no part of that diversity. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so let's let's think about the, the flip side then. So fascism is a 
or what you're calling fascism is a reaction uh, or it's really an assault on democracy. So what what's what do we mean by democracy or what do you mean by democracy? What what is democracy? So liberal democracy is based around two values that are related, connected, theorized together against each other, liberty and equality. Plato in book eight, when he addresses democracy, uh, says liberty leads immediately to equality because if you give people maximum liberty, then you know you have to give them, that will immediately lead to you know treating people as equal because you're giving them an equal space to to exhibit their liberty he thinks that's bad but <laughs> so um so liberty and equality th those are the two central concepts um and what you and 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 the enemies of democracy like uh, madison grant adolf hitler you find them explicitly railing against equality alexander stevens in the cornerstone speech equality is their target and they all say madison grant chapter one of the passing of the great race is called race and democracy you know he's very clear that it's equality it's this myth of equality that's the problem uh hitler same things same comments about equality in mein kampf uh -huh. and uh and uh so equality democracy democracy uh, and then democracy has liberal democracy has a certain vision uh of liberty where liberty means each person is allowed to uh, to do what they want as long as it doesn't harm the liberty of others. Um, and, you know, there are debates about uh, harming the liberty of others and when you harm the liberty of others, and those are healthy and important debates within liberal democracy. Um, fascism involves uh, a different conception of a radically different conception of liberty and an utter repudiation of equality. So, uh, so the different conception of liberty that you you actually find in the American political tradition and defenses of slavery in the South, for instance, in uh, Cannibals, uh, in uh, in George Fitzhugh's book Cannibals All, I think in 1852, um, where Fitzhugh says real liberty is Roman liberty when you have a man who has a woman, children, and enslaves people. And that's his house, and he looks after them, and he's the one who has liberty. And Hitler in Mein Kampf says only in fascism, and not in fascism, do you have liberty, because in liberty, liberty means one person is solely responsible, and that's the dictator, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the leader. So yeah. you have this sick conception of liberty. So liberal democracy is based on liberal freedom and equality. And, it, and it's systems that maximize that. And those systems involve uh, democratic institutions like public education, uh, uh, public goods like parks, healthcare, things like that. Okay, so I want to make I got, I'm going to want to push you again, but I first want to make a comment. Cause, uh, so I, this it's interesting this idea of liberty. Uh, because actually, of course, the idea of liberty is very old. It's a very old value. I mean, you go, you can find it in the Romans. I mean, it's the Greeks, in the Middle Ages, in the Greeks, Romans. You know, it's, it's it's always it's a it's a sort of a long. I don't mean to say universal, but it's a political. Or it's a value with a very very long history that everybody has uh, thought was valuable. And then, of course, there are disagreements about what we mean by liberty. And there are more collectivist understandings of liberty and or this kind of version that you described. And there's more individualistic conceptions of liberty that we might associate with the United States and so forth. 
Um, but one of the things that seems to strike me, uh, we didn't need a representative here, uh, but seem, one of the things that strikes me about these conservative, uh, contemporary conservative critics of liberal democracy uh, is that they seem to be against the idea of liberty altogether. I, you, I, they don't, they, they, they see, I mean, maybe this is not fair, but they, they, they yeah. liberty in their presentation is some sort of like distorted idea that grows out of this sort of a, a notion of the unbridled self, you know, self, uh, something like this. And so they seem to be against liberty itself. They don't even seem to be arguing for recovery of uh, some better version of liberty. You know, that goes, whatever it was, in the, by the founding fathers or whatever they, they but oh, Cicero's you're, you're understanding. You think you agree? Maybe you agree with me on this. I don't know. No, you're absolutely right, and they should, and they should be. But they're not fascists because they're not Uh Uh, anti-equality. So, so they're they're not like railing about ethnic equality. There's no fascism in Patrick Deenan is not a fascist. Uh Uh, He's uh, he's, which is why I mean, there's no railing about the white race or you know like Uh you know uh, there's no railing about equality as a problematic you know all are he's uh, you know yeah yeah. okay so so these are not fascists so Uh fascism requires an attack and equality claim that one group is is the dominant group um but they don't like liberty absolutely um and 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 from their perspective it makes sense um so i don't consider patrick deenan at all Uh, he wouldn't be a fascist but he'd be maybe he's an anti-liberal uh, he's an anti-liberal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't so even I don't... consider Adrian Vermola a fascist, um, uh-huh. though many do. Okay, okay. So, so let me say something All about. Right. The, so they're absolutely right to criticize liberty from their perspective. Plato is violently opposed to liberty. Yeah, and yeah. so, uh, so, and and because Plato regards liberty, you 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 sort of described correctly the long Western tradition in which these figures figure and these fig- in, 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 that these figures rely on. Plato is a foundation. Plato thinks that liberty means everybody does what they want. Democracy is a system where everyone is like, uh, you know, play that marvelous passage from book eight of the democratic man who one day plays the lute and lies around and the next day exercises and never has a consistency. Uh-huh. So that tradition that liberty is kind of anarchy and actually we should all be just doing what we ought to do. So even if you're good, bad, even if you're good at something, even if you hate it, you should be made to do it because you're good at it. So rulers, you know, for Plato don't enjoy ruling, but you know they're they're the wise rulers, so you make them be the rulers. Um, that's a that's a conception of of a state. It's not a fascist view. Um, it's a deeply illiberal view, but it has strong Western foundations. And, and the sort of Christian or Catholic version of that is what you find from certain illiberal American theorists. Uh, but again, mm-hmm. it's not fascism because it doesn't. You know, it's close to it, it's. Um, uh, you know, it's it's uh, integralism, uh, and integralism, and integralists have joined fascist movements. Integralists, especially in Latin America, my my co-author and uh, Federico Finkelstein writes this a lot about this a lot. Figures like Salgado and Brazil, who are widely regarded as integralists, but yeah. the integralist fascist connection is tight. Fascist groupings will draw on integralists, but. Um, uh, but fascist groupings also involve oligarchs who seek to be 
to seek who seek Roman libertarian freedom. <laughs> no, they, they're like, oh, we're going to exploit the rubes, and we won't be, we won't, we won't have to obey any laws anymore. All right, so let me let me uh, okay, let me see. I'm going to go back to your definition where you talk about liberty and equality uh, about democracy. Let me see if I I'm going to see if I can push on this in some ways. So. I would say, okay, so you've mentioned liberty and equality, and let's say that I would say these are, are sort of central, I agree, democratic values, right? You could add others. You could add justice, liberty, equality, justice. These are these are important political values which uh, we want to honor sort of in a, in a liberal democracy, but probably you want to honor, well, you want to honor some of them in other kinds of polities also. So th these are political values. Um, but that's not the, this is what I, where I want to push back. That's not the same thing as uh, liberal democracy, because liberal democracy, I'm going to make an argument now, li liberal democracy is really a, is a sort of a, a political arrangement that is concerned with uh, addressing some of the dangers or the threats that come with power, with political power, and wants to create or construct a kind of political arrangement or a political constitution or political institutions that uh, protect, protect these political values and allow us to, you know, because they're always going to be contested, there's always going to be, you know, you're always going to have to argue for greater justice and so forth. But it's a, it's a system for addressing questions of how to how, political power that allows us to advance and protect these values. Are you agree? It looks like you're, okay, so, uh, okay, so. I, I agree, but I think that follows from my definition. Uh -huh. Well, okay, it just in terms of the focus. So for me, the focus would be uh, we've got to make sure that we protect our the kinds of institutions uh, that we need to preserve these political values because they're important values. And, and in fact, a large part of the history, if you were a great historian, you could tell the history of Western civilization, whatever, from Greek, Romans, whatever, medieval Europe, has been about uh, how best... To protect, you know, what ordered liberty or something. We, okay, we don't want the, the sort of license that Plato is concerned about, but we do value liberty, and people have always valued liberty, and we're trying to. And there are various kinds of threats to liberty. There's a threat of, let's say, fine. There's a threat of uh, excessive license that Plato uh, talked about, but there's also the danger of uh, concentration of power, obviously, right? Uh, which Plato doesn't seem to be too worried about in the in the Republic, uh, uh, and so. Okay, so what I think, okay, if you if one focuses on fascism, okay, well I don't know if this is true, but I'm throwing this out. If one focuses on fascism, you, the 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 focus of the argument is on these political values, and I you know, whatever we don't want to be racist and these other kind, and that, that's all true, but we lose the focus a little bit on these questions of st institutional uh, structure and power, or maybe, or that's what I'd be afraid of. So for me. I don't care if someone, I don't really know who's fascist or not. It's not really a big deal to me. But to me, an anti-liberal Catholic, okay, is as big a problem if there, uh, to our democratic institutions as somebody you're calling a fascist. I don't want to call them fascist because I don't want to get them upset. Right. Uh, uh, you know, but there's a sort of, the, the underlying problem is the anti-liberalism. And that is more important in the long run than whether someone is, we call them a fascist or we call them an integralist or I don't know what other categories right. are out there. I, I don't, I, I don't think I massively disagree with you. Uh -huh. I'm okay. focused on ethnic because my, you know, because my family was massacred uh -huh. in an ethnic genocide and because uh -huh. my two kids are Jewish black kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I'm right. focused on 
ethnic violence and, and the danger of ethnic violence. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that integralism is a deep threat. Figures like Dean are a deep threat to liberal democracy. Um, but, but my focus in my work, because of my past, because of the identity of my family, mm -hmm. and which is my family, nothing's more important to me than my children. Um, you know, uh, and I live in a country that has <laughs> well, racism is a problem. Is, is a problem right, where I mean, fascism it, has for been sure about right, some. Yeah, right, <laughs> so, right. So you know, I would say the foundational moment for my life was when I when I held my first child in my hands, and 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 I said, I now have a young black son, <laughs> and mm -hmm. and so so I absolutely agree with you that inter integralism is illiberal. It's a threat. Um, it's a threat to freedom. Uh, and and I am first and foremost a Democrat, but I am also focused, but I'm less focused on integralism because I'm, uh, you know, th that I, maybe I should be because um, because for me, it's that it's that ethnic hierarchy threat. Uh, it's that it's that praise of uh, of of uh, it's that image of what an American should be uh, that neither I nor my children, frankly, meet that I want to combat because I'm a patriotic American and I think mm -hmm. every right to be. So, so, so I absolutely agree with you. And my work has been targeted more on fascism and less on the broad illiberal threat. Uh -huh. um, because, be, because I think, you know, and before How Propaganda Works, my book How Propaganda Works was all about racialized mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, because, you know, statistics show that that there's an enormous threat of imprisonment facing young black men, regardless of class. So um, so uh, so fast. So it's the that ethnic, that extra ethnic focus, given who I am, given who my family is, who my children are, um, is something that um, to me is is very salient. And it's, it's something that I. I, I, I cannot minimize, I can't, um, so, uh, so, yeah, okay. yeah. Makes sense. I mean, it is more salient than, than integralism, honestly, right, in, in right. American politics. So, yeah. uh, I, um, all right. So I agree. Need... I, I agree. We need, you know, we need to denounce, uh, you know, integralism is a threat to freedom <laughs> and <laughs> democracy. Or at least, certainly liberal democracy. Well, that's what I think too. So yeah. maybe one or two of them will listen to this podcast and send <laughs> an angry uh, email or probably just ignore ignore me that's what they tend to do so well anyway um okay jace thank you very much uh that was a sort of a lively conversation i appreciated it i appreciate it a lot and um uh well i wish you all the best in your in, in your in your new book and your future work and you know maybe we'll we'll run into each other again in connection with hungry yeah uh, well let's let's you know thank you for your work internationally david i'm not uh, multiple people have told me how important you've been to Hungarian democracy. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Well, thank you very much. And all of my listeners, after hearing that endorsement, I hope you'll make a point of listening to the next episode, which should uh, come down in about a month. Until then, see you.